1: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. President Donald Trump delivered his State of the Union address to a joint session of Congress last night. The message began with calls for partisan unity, but took a sharp turn to rebuke investigations of his administration. He then continued calls for his signature issues, immigration and a border wall. Following the speech, all eyes were on Georgia, where former gubernatorial nominee Stacey Abrams delivered the Democratic response from Atlanta.
0: Because America wins by fighting for our shared values against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That is who we are.
1: Abrams Spade History is the first African-American woman and first non-sitting official to give the response. GPB political reporter Stephen Fowler was at an Atlanta watch party last night and joins me in the studio to talk about more. Hello, welcome. Good morning. Well, first, set the scene for us. You were at Noni's Bar in Delhi. From pictures on Twitter, it looks like you were standing under a disco ball behind the bar.
2: That is right, Virginia. It was pretty much the only place for me. It was packed. They said the occupancy of the front room was about 220. And I'd say there were close to that number there, people sitting, standing, eating, watching. Uh, It was many of the people that were there said it was the first time that they watched the State of the Union publicly or something like that, because they were there to support Stacey Abrams. This was pushed by the Georgia Democratic Party and Abrams' new voting rights group Fair Fight Action. So there were signs, there were cheers, there were chants. So they were trying to do this to keep supporters stoked for whatever Abrams' next move may be.
1: So a heavily Democratic crowd, wondering about the response. President Trump's State of the Union speech lasted just under an hour and a half. What were some of the big takeaways?
2: Well, some of the big takeaways in the crowd was lots of booing. I was actually had to follow along on text because the people watching were so uh, loud and raucous with the president's speech. But immigration. Is is still the biggest issue, the border wall, border security, stopping gangs. Uh, also, it's the Democrats' fault for many of the things that happened, in case you haven't heard that before. Uh, there was a really nice moment where they sang happy birthday to a Holocaust survivor, you know, one of the few ad-libbed things that happened during the speech. But uh, many Democrats they kept showing were visibly dismissive of President Trump's speech.
1: Yeah, some funny memes about uh, how Nancy Pelosi was looking behind the podium there. Anything come up, however, that make you think specific? of Georgia voters.
2: Well, I mean, talk about border wall, border security, immigration is something that even though Georgia does not have a physical border with Mexico, it's something on the minds of a lot of people because we have industries in Georgia that benefit from migrant workers and maybe some undocumented immigrants that come there. Uh, Governor Brian Kemp has made stopping gangs a big priority of his, so there's some overlap there. And President Trump did give a shout out to something that Congress did do, which is reform the VA, which is something that Republican Senator Johnny Isaacson championed.
1: Okay, so the Democratic response, of course, came from Georgia's own Stacey Abrams, first time a Georgian gave that response. What was her approach to this national audience?
2: Well, it followed a pretty typical pattern of a speech that she delivered, uh, personal anecdotes with pieces of policy, but it still kept things more Georgia-focused than I think people were anticipating. She didn't mention Governor Kemp or former Governor Deal by name, but used them both as examples of how not to work bipartisan in nature and how how bipartisanship can get things done Uh, and she hammered home some pretty forceful points democratic talking points about uh, border safety you know talking about children in cages and gun, uh, gun rights and gun safety and things like that
1: this was the biggest speech of her political career to date what did viewers and pundits have to say
2: well, I've already read two articles this morning talking about why isn't Stacey Abrams running for president in 2020. So I think, you know, she's no Bobby Jindal or Steve Bashir. She broke the curse of giving the State of the Union response by delivering a rhetorically strong response that hit all of her personal talking points. And I think a lot of the party's talking points and a lot of people had a lot of good things to say. I mean, even people on the right that said a lot of what she had to say was not grounded in reality thought that she delivered it well. So I think this was a strong speech for her on many levels.
1: She already has said she's not leaving politics anytime soon. Too early to say, Stacey 2020.
2: I think not. She did say by the end of March she's going to make a decision about whether she runs for Senate. But I think after a speech like this and with a reception like this, there's definitely going to be more Stacey Abrams campaigns in our near future. I
1: need to follow with Stephen Fowler. Thank you so much. Thank you. Stephen's our GPB politics reporter covering all things legislative for us at the Capitol. You can hear his latest piece on the State of the Union. That's online at gpbnews.org. Well, on to other international affairs, but things that land right here in Georgia. Research shows language learning benefits academic achievement, cognitive abilities, and cultural awareness. It's also just plain useful in our increasingly global world. Georgia does lead the Southeast in percentage of students enrolled in foreign language classes. That's at 22 percent, a little higher than the 20 percent of students nationwide nationwide but low by international standards. Patrick Wallace is Program Specialist for World Languages and Global Workforce Initiatives at the Georgia Department of Education, Good morning. Good
3: morning, or buenos dias, bonjour, guten Morgen.
1: Do you have to do that all the time? I you do, have to speak... actually.
3: I know it's, I'm representing world language, so definitely I want to give a shout-out to all of our wonderful world language teachers and students throughout Georgia.
1: Well, thank you for being here. And Jacques Marcotte, he is Secretary of the Board of Directors at the French-American Chamber of Commerce in Atlanta. And bonjour.
4: Bonjour. Good morning. <laughs> Thanks Good morning. for having
1: us. Thank you for being here. Patrick, I'm thinking Georgia. Really? I mean, in Gwinnett County, offering voting materials in Spanish? Spanish? Spanish has been contentious, Georgia has one of the highest deportation rates. How did the state end up leading the Southeast in foreign language education?
3: Well, I think we always have to uh, put that in sort of a context. We do reach a lot of our students with world language education, and we're proud of that fact. As someone who grew up here just a few miles away, I'm proud of that fact. Um, but we also have to put that in the context that we live in a world of eight billion people four billion plus speak at least two languages at this point in europe eighty five percent northwards know at least two languages many have a, a working operational ability in a third so this is the context in which we are operating so yes we are leading and we're leading in a, non- a lot of ways and for a lot of reasons our wonderful world language teachers i definitely point to their work uh... the sacrifices they make the plans they make their passion for what they do and the willingness to take take leadership roles in that are definitely a part of that. I think it's also part of just the economic realities of what we have here in Georgia. I mean, we have one of the fastest growing ports in the nation. We have the world's busiest airport for 20 years plus running. Uh, We are a destination state. So uh, we have over 3,000 companies here from Europe alone. And I will say that we, uh, my statistics, they say 31, 32 percent of all of world language students, the K-12 public school system, 1.7 million plus students, about 31 percent of them are taking some type of world language. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's good. Good, but, of course, they're still in that two-year, I would call it a box, you know, and so real proficiency, we know we need more. Uh, time and more um, articulation of that. also would point to our dual language immersion programs, which are teaching us so much about how language learning is done and the impact of that. Uh, those students are, if you can imagine it, are learning science and math and French and German and Spanish and Mandarin and Japanese and next year with Korean. And nearly all of those 53 programs have waiting lists or lotteries for students to enter. So again, it's an indication of the need and desire of the public population for this. And I think also the increase diversity that we find here in the Georgia Department of Ed we talk a lot about the whole child and there are a lot of lenses we can put in front of that and of course poverty is one of those lenses but also language and culture and as we collectively kind of wrap our instructional arms around the whole child we also need to as Georgia kind of wrap our arms around who we are as Georgians and that we are a diverse uh, community and growing more diverse each day and that is our differences are not our disadvantages but rather our advantages mm-hmm. there is a, a African proverb that says if if you want to go far uh, if you want to go fast go alone if you want to go far go with a group and I really want Georgia to go far so I want us as a state to wrap our arms around all our different communities and bring them on board. You know, we have the Georgia Seal of Biliteracy here, which is a certification of meaningful language proficiency before students exit high school. And it's available in a hundred different languages. Uh, all of our heritage speaking communities, if you are a student right now listening to me and you have a heritage language, we want to encourage that language. And furthermore, I want you to get the seal of biliteracy in that language. Because from now until the day you stop applying for jobs, that should be on every application you write. If you're in a university or college system. We have wonderful university and college programs here throughout Georgia. I would encourage you to minor in a language or to get some certification of that. If you're in the technical college system, get an OPI, WPT, put it on your resume, because the the world is, uh, the distance between the product and the service and the consumers is as close as an internet connection. Today.
1: Well, let's talk with a little bit more about that. And you've unpacked so much. I definitely want to get to the dual immersion language because it's an innovative and interesting program. But Jacques, you know, Georgia, state, the probably it itself on being pro-business. We, had, we mentioned uh, so many businesses here. Mercedes-Benz, a German company. UPS is based here, an epitome of a global company. Is Georgia's business community telling education leaders, we need a multilingual workforce?
4: Probably not sufficiently enough, but you mentioned Mercedes-Benz coming in. Uh, We forget that PSA, Peugeot SA, is coming to Atlanta with a new uh, U.S. headquarters. So a lot of French companies are coming here. The French American Chamber of Commerce has led in getting people to be more aware of the need for other languages.
1: Well, you, and part of the mission there of the French American Chamber of Commerce is to improve commercial and personal relationships between business leaders and communities in France and the Southeast. Interesting, the use of personal. What is it that, of course, it's hard to have a real personal relationship if you don't speak another language, but what is making that one on one connection as human beings? How does that help Georgia's business prospects?
4: Well, the the Alliance Francaise, which is a sister organization is really focused on the cultural side of it. The French-American Chamber of Commerce is primarily on business. But part of doing international business is you need to build personal relationships. Um, we tend, North Americans, to meet somebody, do the business, and then build a relationship. Uh-huh. The rest of the world is a little more sensitive to getting to know each other, respect each other. If we don't do business today, doesn't mean we'll not do business later on. We are becoming a little more sensitive to this. Interesting, love. We have many unilingual Americans coming to the French American Chamber of Commerce.
1: Unilingual meaning they only speak English. That's correct, mm-hmm.
4: and it's okay. And they have a chance to see another part of the world, another culture. And we have uh, many francophiles in Atlanta that have limited knowledge of French, but love the culture and love the uh, doing business in that environment.
1: Well, you speak French, Spanish, Portuguese, and English. From a business perspective, what kind of demand is there for workers who speak multiple languages? It's
4: it's an increasing demand, and Patrick just raised that. Uh, More and more people will need to have. The, the, The key advantage is while most of the people in business in the world speak English as a second language, once you're able to speak in somebody's language or be at ease in their environment, you get the trust building a lot faster.
1: Patrick, you, we we're looking at this 22% number. Are the numbers coming from diverse areas like metro Atlanta's Gwinnett County, for example? Or are rural schools also handing out more German, Spanish, and other language textbooks as well?
3: Well, of course, there is a challenge. Um, there are different challenges all around our state, and that economic need is there. I mean, it's in the agricultural communities, in our rural communities. It's, it's in a lot of areas. So it is, uh, we, I'm very sensitive to the needs of our districts and our superintendents and our schools to with the funds they have but I definitely want to encourage them to stretch. You know, I always talk about anchoring and a need and stretching toward a solution. So we definitely, and my service is to all 212 school districts. So I definitely have global Georgia in mind, and I mean all of Georgia, rural Georgia as well as metro. So the need is not only metro, it's also rural. So being able to um, expand those language programs that are in rural Georgia are important because we have the International Skills Diploma SEAL, another great SEAL program driven by business to identify students who have at least advanced language, uh, have taken advanced language courses, but also have engaged in intercultural communication. I want to mention and kind of pivot on what Jock said with uh, Nelson Mandela, I had a great quote. He said, uh, if you speak to a man in a language he can understand, that goes to his head. But if you can speak to a man in his own her language or his language, whatever, it goes to his heart. And so we need more heart-to-heart conversations. Dr. Martin Luther King had another great quote. He said, people fail to understand each other because they fear each other, and they fear each other because they don't know each other, and they don't know each other because they don't talk to each other. We need to build more bridges.
1: Well, you could tell Patrick Wallace is an educator. He's program (laughs) specialist for world languages and global workforce initiatives. That's at the Georgia Department of Education. Jacques Marcotte is also with his secretary of board of directors at the French-American Chamber of Commerce in Atlanta. And we're talking about what Makes Georgia number one in the Southeast for language education enrollment and why it matters. We'll continue after a short break. This is On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott, and we're continuing our conversation about world language education. Georgia leads the Southeast in percentages of students enrolled in foreign language education classes. And we're talking with Patrick Wallace. He's a program specialist for World Languages and Global Workforce Initiatives at the Georgia Department of Education. Also, Jacques Marcotte, he is Secretary of the Board of Directors of the French-American Chamber of Commerce in Atlanta. Patrick, I want to go to what you were talking about, the whole child education and getting people out of the box of the two-year programs. Somebody listening to this might be transformed back to high school Spanish class. So take us into our present-day classroom. What is new in language education?
3: Well, language education and our knowledge of language acquisition has improved dramatically over the years. We are now, if I always said, uh, kind of a, it correlated to, you know, before we had microscopes, we did thought that the smallest thing we saw was what existed, and then we discovered microscopes. So Definitely in World Language Education and this focus on proficiency, it's definitely very important for us to um, move forward. And a lot of work has been done both with ACTFL nationally and other areas. But definitely we are improving our world language education as a rule in Georgia.
1: You mentioned the dual immersion program. What is that?
3: So the dual immersion program is where language is basically instruction is carried out in two languages. Half the day is in another target language. So they are learning science and math. As I mentioned, these it's important to point out that these teachers are teaching content in a second language, which adds a whole nother level of rigor, which can uh, impact the kids cognitively, as you mentioned, academically. Uh, all the good reasons for that. And um, those kids are excelling, you know, increasing English literacy. I always tell people if you're concerned about English literacy and literacy is the gateway to knowledge, then uh, you should be improved and, tr- and, uh, and concerned about adding a second language because the data, large-scale longitudinal data over many decades and continues to confirm and even our own in-state data and the milestones test continues to confirm that DLI students are not only uh, meeting all the expectations, they're exceeding them in a many, many cases. So definitely, it's not, at any case, uh, a disadvantage to those students. It's a form of education. IB programs are on the rise in Georgia, another indication that people want this education for their children.
1: Well, let's hear from a student in one of these dual immersion programs, Dominic. He's from the International Charter School of Atlanta, native Spanish speaker and learning French.
0: Apprendre langue c'est un privilege because not all children can learn different language. j'aime, j'aime.
1: Je suis grateful. <laughs> do you wanna do you want to translate for us, shock? Just we grateful. <laughs> well, so you I'm right. very content. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are in the business, obviously, yeah. and you know this this whole international specter. What do you what would you say to a high school principal or teacher who thinks, Oh, I can't afford a language program, or it's not really what we
4: do. Your kids or your students cannot afford not to have a language program. And I should be, as being with the French American Chamber, I should be saying learn French. But the language that the person studies first is irrelevant. Take, take a, a language that the, the young uh, lady or the young man is going to enjoy. They grow. A third language will be quite easy when business calls. Just learning a second language already changes your perspective of the world and uh, meeting people.
1: And we already know dual immersion programs now yeah. in elementary and middle schools, correct, Patrick? Correct. Research shows kids, little kids especially, are linguistic sponges. So it looks like European language courses sometimes start with kids as young as three. Is that the right model?
3: Well, it's definitely true that the earlier you start and the more immersive you are, the better that the results will be. And kids are um, incredibly agile mind-wise. I think the biggest uh, dis- um Limits on the ability of children are often the limits of the imagination of us as adults and the structure that we build for them. But if you go to those schools and you watch those kids, for them, it's a normal thing to learn another language. They don't encounter it as a difficulty, but they embrace it as an opportunity. And they really are just naturally predisposed. We are predisposed to learn language, and it's so important. If you ask a business person what's the most important language to learn, they might say the language of the customer. If you ask me, I say it doesn't matter what language you learn. What matters is a level. Get proficient because, one, there's a great quote. uh, One language sets you on a corridor for life. Two languages opens more doors along that way.
1: Mm -hmm. And Jacques, uh, you're nodding there. What significance do these designations have when multinational companies are coming in? As you said, Peugeot is on the way, considering whom to hire.
4: Well, Georgia has about 20,000 French companies established. Tennessee has close to 20,000, and Alabama's got close to 10,000. So in the the tri-state area, we've got 50,000 companies involved from France. So the opportunity is there.
1: Okay, so another plug for French, but other languages go. as well. Patrick, how about post-graduation? What kind of workforce initiatives or higher ed language programs should current K-12 through students know about?
3: Well, I think uh, we're, some dynamic things are happening. The same uh, revolution, if you will, that's happening in K-12 is going to play out at, at the higher levels as well. I want to point to the Center for Urban Language Teaching and Research at Georgia State, also the Atlanta Global Studies Center that is now kicking off the ground. Georgia Tech is combining language with ma- uh, programs, master degree programs, to get uh, take language, as I say, out of that box. Um, you know, we can, you have to think about it. Language is fluid. It's a river, and you can float anything on it content-wise. So instead of, you know, I always having two pathways. I mean, I always this morning I woke up and said, you know, Patrick, you can Google in German. That automatically opens up to me a whole world of possibilities that are equally as important for my employer. Um, Market research. Let's talk about that. You know, again, uh, the defense industry, strategic language list uh, that they have, they have a desperate need for language. There's so much so they pay extra for it. You are proficient in a second language. You can earn $6,000 above your base pay. Um, They're not going to take your word for it. They're going to, test you. But again and again and again, I say language is important across a broad spectrum of, uh, of jobs. So I think we are all oriented toward that, that. And it's not to take away from the culture and the beauty of that. The tourism industry in Georgia is $60 billion plus. Mm-hmm. So I mean, of course, hospitality and restaurant needs workers who are bilingual. Um, and that's just the realities of the world we live in.
1: Well, thanks for your passion, Patrick Wallace, Program Specialist for World Languages and Global Workforce Initiatives at the Georgia Department of Education.
3: Thank you very much for
1: having me. And Jacques Marcotte, Secretary of the Board of Directors at the French-American Chamber of Commerce. Merci. Merci à vous. Now, there are several languages that are going to be represented at the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival, which opens today and has films running in venues across Atlanta for the next three weeks. little history here. Nearly 2,000 people attended the first Atlanta Jewish Film Festival in the year 2000. In 2015, it became the largest Jewish film festival in the world, attracting almost 39,000 moviegoers. Hazel Gold is co-chair of the Film Evaluation Committee for the festival, and she's with us in the
0: studio. Hello. Hi, Virginia. Thank you so much for having me on this morning.
1: Well, thank you for being here. Sean Snyder is director and co-writer of the film To Dust. It is one of 76 being shown at the festival. He's on the line with us from New York. Sean, thanks for being with us.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Well, you know, I'm looking at the history of, of Jewish film festivals, and particularly in Atlanta. Now 150 Jewish film festivals in American cities, tens of thousands of people coming to see films here over this three-week period. Why, Hazel, do you think these events have grown so popular so quickly?
0: I think it's due in part to the popularity of film as a popular entertainment. And I think it's also due to the fact that this particular film festival is so broad. It reaches so many communities. A large percentage of our viewers who come to the festival year after year are not Jewish. They come from all walks of life here in Atlanta, from many different communities. And the film festival has features, both short features as well as full-length features, that cover themes and topics of relevance to people from all walks of life with many different interests.
1: How about for you, Sean? Your Two Dust has been featured in several Jewish film festivals. I'm seeing things, opinion pieces about its Film is filling the same void in community that synagogues used to, especially for more secular Jews. Do you see a hunger for films dealing with Jewish experience?
5: Um, I do. I think so. I, I, you know, there's this Jewish history in, in film and this Jewish love of, of film. And I think that, uh, I don't know, especially with, with, with the Dust or, or the best Jewish films, they're, they're almost Talmudic or rabbinic in nature. You know, films that, don't, that aren't didactic, but that one can engage in and asks questions and answers and sparks conversation and puts different things, you know, um, different perspectives uh, in conversation with each other.
1: Well, Hazel, I'm thinking of, you know, the old Woody Allen joke about, you know, let's go to the Jewish Film Festival and watch a 13-hour film on the Holocaust. (laughs) Now, you have 76 films showcasing over 180 different screenings. How do you go about curating a diverse showcase for this diverse audience?
0: Well, as you can imagine, that's quite a logistics issue, and uh, there are several ways that happens. One of the ways is by programming films that cover a very wide variety of genres. If there's a type of film, we probably have programmed it at the festival. So we have biographies. We have all kinds of documentaries. And in the fictional film or narrative film category, we have thrillers. We have horror films. This year we have a female protagonist horror film called The Golem. Terrific film. We have rom-coms. There are family-friendly films for preteens and younger children. There are films that, of course, do deal with the Holocaust and the aftermath of the Holocaust in World War II. So there are films dealing with women's issues, with LGBTQ issues. So that's one way different genres. I think another way, and it is one of the things that distinguishes the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival, most Jewish film festivals are put together by a very small executive board. The Atlanta Festival, from its inception, has had a broader way of doing things, a more open and democratic way. And so we have a volunteer committee, over 200 volunteers, who work on the Film Evaluation Committee and this has been the third year that it's my privilege to co-chair that committee. And because this is a very prestigious festival, directors all want their work to be shown here. So we received 703 film submissions this year, all from directors who would like to be screened at the festival. Our volunteers, between the months of May and November, watch these films that are screened online at a protected website. They do a very short online evaluation, and then I help lead meetings every two, two two-and-a-half weeks where we discuss these films. And the committee itself represents the same diversity both of our audience and of Atlanta generally. We cross ages. We have millennials. We have retirees. We have people who belong to different faith communities. We have committee members who belong to different ethnic communities. They come with a wide range of professional expertise. Their jobs, everything from psychologists, people in the arts community, educators, medical doctors.
1: I'm going to stop you because I want to make sure that we get to hear a little bit more about Sean's film. So uh, sorry about that. There are movies, of course, set in contemporary America, like your film, Sean. It's an acidic community in upstate New York called To Dust. Let's hear just a, a little bit of from the film. It's it's a little bit of a dark buddy comedy. We have a science teacher played by Matthew Broderick and the Hungarian actor Geza Rorig as a grief-stricken cantor committing blasphemy, basically. Here's a clip.
0: I've just sinned. I've spent my whole day sinning. I'm not sure if you can recognize the doctor.
4: Well, it's not doctor. I don't, just professor.
0: Professor, please.
4: I don't even know what you're asking. I fear for her. I fear her
0: soul is suffering until she returns to the earth. What's to become of her body?
1: What's going on here, Sean? So um, it's
5: complicated. Uh, the death tells the story of, of, of Shmuel, he's a Hasidic cantor, as you mentioned, in upstate New York, and he's deeply distraught over uh, the untimely death of his wife. And he's trying and he's trying and he's trying to, to seek religious solace through the very <clears throat> specific <clears throat> um, mourning rituals of the Jewish faith. Uh, and yet, his grief is spilling outside of the boundaries of those uh, of those guidelines, and it's starting to manifest itself as this gnawing need to understand what's happening to her body uh, after burial as she decomposes six feet under. Uh, asking those questions is an incredibly taboo in his community, sort of an existential threat to to his worldview. Uh, so he needs to to tiptoe outside of that enclave, and that search lands him at a community college, uh, where to his Spiritual and scientific rescue comes Albert, played by Matthew Broderick who is a bit of a bumbling uh, bewildered, bored um, Jethro Tull loving biology professor and the two embark on a darkly, darkly, darkly comic and increasingly literal uh, undertaking into the underworld to try to figure out you know, what the realities of, of death are. It's a um, very odd and, and oddly personal film um, it's, uh, about love and loss and, uh, life and grief and deep questions and a uh, handful of decaying pigs <laughs> along the way.
1: <laughs> it is really quite a film tackling grief and acceptance and science and religion, devotion, devout believers in the secular world. Why are these contrasts so interesting to you, Sean?
5: I think that, that, um, you know, the movie always, it intends to ask more questions than it answers. It's about these huge issues and and these deep issues. And I do think that, um, you know, there are unknowns and and there has to be this humility uh, and religion and science are often seen as opposites, but I think that they can enter into conversation with each other in a very beautiful way. And there's many nuanced ways in which they, you know, they, they interact and they converse with each other. But at the end of the day, I mean, if you go down the rabbit hole of, of religion and you go down the rabbit hole of science, you're greeted with, with the unknown and with mystery. And I think that there needs to be humility before that mystery and I also think that the film deals with sort of going down the rabbit hole of an individual human heart yet idiosyncratically trying to find uh, its meaning and, and purpose and, and and life and continuing life after the loss of uh, of a, of a spouse and after the loss of, of a loved one that that deep and dear and the way in which an idiosyncratic heart idiosyncratically heals is is unknown and mysterious as well and I think that if we can enter that conversation and put those things into play um, uh, and do so humbly um, uh, and break down those borders, that's something that there's a very interesting conversation that can happen. And um, based on the the sheer absurdity of life and the, and the tonal um, tightrope that is life itself, there's some comedy in there too.
1: With well, Sean Snyder, To Dust, his film opens on March 1st at the Springs Cinema and Tap House in Sandy Springs and at the Terrace Cinema, Cinema 4 in Atlanta. Hazel, thank you so much for being with us and congratulations on all the films you've put together. Thank you so much. Hazel Gold, co-chair of the Film Evaluation Committee for the Atlanta Jewish Film Festival. There'll be more on Second Thought coming up in just a moment. I'm Virginia Prescott. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Jessica Kensky and Patrick Downs were newlyweds and spectators at the 2013 Boston Marathon. They were at the finish line, cheering on other runners when the bombs went off. Patrick lost his left leg. Jessica eventually lost both legs. The blast was followed by countless surgeries, rounds of physical therapy, and some very dark days. Then they added another member to their family, a black lab named Rescue. Rescue is a therapy dog and the subject of Jessica and Patrick's New York Times best-selling children's book, Rescue and Jessica, a life-changing friendship. And they're among the authors who are going to be at the Savannah Book Festival next weekend. Joining me now from Boston, welcome. Thank you. Hi. Thanks for yeah, thanks for having us. So is Rescue going to bark for us, or is he, you know, he, doesn't only, he only does radio when uh, his contract permits?
6: Ready? Speak. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Good boy,
6: good job, good boy. That's him saying, you know, hello, good morning, and he can't wait to come down, y'all. So, (laughs) so
1: glad to meet Rescue and the pair of you who've been through just an amazing, amazing journey. If you can bring us back a little bit, how long had you been married actually before the Boston Marathon?
7: We had been married uh, six or seven months. We were married in August of 2012. We had been together for a while, Uh, We dated for about six years, and I took a little too long to pop the question, Uh, but we had done a lot of long distance and finally had moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Jess was a nurse at Mass General, and I was in a doctorate program for psychology, and so we were just so happy to be together. Mm. I had just gotten an internship out in San Francisco for psychology, and so we were going to move out there in the summer of 2013. And wanted to go to the marathon one last time because without knowing it, we both ran the marathon in 2005. And we loved running. A lot of our first dates were running. And so we just wanted to go and be a part of what I think is the best day in the city.
1: Mm, Well, and it was a it was a day that forever changed your lives, certainly that April 5th of 2013. For you, uh, both of you, after the bombing, losing two limbs in Jessica's case, one in yours, you were living for three years at Walter Reed Hospital in Maryland, pretty statistically, let's say hard for relationships to survive traumatic events. How did you guys stay connected in the aftermath?
6: Um, that's a great question, and I actually have found that a lot of people assume that both of us going through such a traumatic event together would bring you closer together, and I think the opportunity is there to become closer when anybody goes through a traumatic event together, but I think more often than not, trauma does pull people apart, whether it's you know losing a child or um, a terrible car accident or something like what we went through, because you're still two different individuals who are trying to cope The best they can individually and then to do that together within a marriage is really hard and then throwing in Patrick more often than not was the caretaker role and I was the patient role it just are the whole dynamic changed and for a very long time so we're very open about it Um, in addition to doing good things for ourselves like bringing rescue into our lives we've done a lot of individual therapy and marriage counseling and psychiatry work and I think that I credit that as the only real reason we're still together today. Because huh. there were many times where it, you know, it puts a lot of stress. And if you have a little crack in the foundation, I think it's very easy to just completely lose each other in all of this.
1: So rescue was part of not just keeping your physical sense of safety and connection together, but emotional. When did rescue first come into your lives?
6: So we, um, I applied for him from my hospital bed. In you know, the weeks after the bombing, and I remember having the phone call with one of the women in charge of the service dog program needs. They're actually in central Massachusetts. And she said, you know, ma'am, we'd love to help you, but we're going to need for you to get out of the hospital first. Mm. And so I waited until, you know, the day I got discharged and I called and let her know I was out. Please process my application. So Rescue joined our family officially um, September after the bombing, which for a lot of people would have been too early after such a major life-changing event. At the time, neither Patrick or I realized how much medical care and interventions we were going to need. Still, we kind of thought we were done. But we got him that fall, and the purpose in my mind was I was going to be navigating this world completely differently, and anything that was was there as an assistive device, you know, just like I was using wheelchair and crutches, I thought this service dog was going to help me in a very physical sense. And I think none of us anticipated all of the – um, additional ways he would help us emotionally mm. and you know I I tell people he is a service dog for someone with a physical disability And that is his primary function. But there happens to be all these other amazing things. You know, just the fact that I think rescue needs to be exercised and taken out and fed and um, loved gave me a new focus. I was um, a nurse when I was hurt and all of a sudden wasn't able to work. And so I think to have a new place to put that time and energy and— Taking him outside and exercising him was also getting Patrick and I off the couch and getting us outside and to go down on the bike trail or to throw a ball and do these activities that I think we wouldn't have
1: done. That's Jessica Kensky. She and Patrick Downs are author of the book Rescue and Jessica, A Life-Changing Friendship. Well, Patrick, what were you saying? Uh, Jessica said that you were mostly the caretaker. What did you see when Jessica was going through this and then rescue came into your lives?
7: Each day was uh, an exhausting struggle, both physically and psychologically. We would be running around the city going to doctor's appointments, having a lot of consultations as to whether or not Jess could keep her lower right leg. We didn't really know what the future held for us and we were exhausted by it. And the day we got rescue, I can still picture him bounding through the door at the service dog organization And we bursted out laughing. Hmm. Jess was laughing. I was laughing. Her sister, her father, we were just, and this feeling came through our bodies that was unrecognizable in some ways that we hadn't had that kind of joy and laughter for a really long time. So it felt like we were experiencing it for the first time. And also for our extended family to give them something to laugh about, to give us something to talk about that was a safe topic. Mm. Most of what we talked about in those times were so loaded. And even something that you thought was innocuous ended up being loaded in some way.
1: Yeah, and then you wrote this book focusing on an 11-year-old character named Jessica. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, her disability does mirror yours in real life, but with one noticeable difference. Her amputations were not related to uh, a traumatic event like the Boston Marathon bombing. Why did you decide to skip that in your book, Jessica?
6: It was something that Patrick and I, I don't even know that we formally talked about it. I just think we both knew it was not where we wanted to put our time and energy Um And you have so few words and so few pages to tell this story that that's not the remarkable part of the Jessica and Rescue story. And um, you don't really know as the reader, unless you read, you know, the back matter, you really don't know why that character is in the hospital and what's going on. You know, she's not healthy. You know, the doctors say in order to be healthy again, we need to remove the sick part of your body. But that's not the that's not where the amazing part of the story happens. You know, it's it's what happens after that and how she and Rescue begin to navigate this new world again. And, um, you know, it does mirror mine in that, I thought I was getting better with that first amputation and the worst was behind me and then to have to go back and make the horrible decision to amputate my second remaining leg and start over was just so terrible to do, horrible for people to watch and felt like starting over at the beginning again and everything is twice as hard. And I think kids might not relate to a double amputation, but... Growing up is tough, and being an adult is tough, frankly, but, you know, I think they can relate to the practicing and trying again and feeling like you've mastered something only to find out you've actually been defeated and you need to start over. Mm. So we just felt like these were the themes that are important to share with um, young children. And the book was really born out of Patrick and I being in public spaces in all different phases of our recovery with no prosthetic, with prosthetics, in crutches, in a wheelchair. And we drew a lot of attention from young children. And I didn't know what to do or what to say. I think my instinct was to hide these horrific injuries and hide this terrible story from young children. And Patrick's training in psychology and his work with children – he knew that you could and should be honest with kids. You, you mean like
1: they would come up to you and, or stare at your legs or your prosthetics yeah, and wonder absolutely. what it was? Absolutely. In
6: an elevator. In an mm-hmm. elevator, a little kid would say, but where did your legs like these go? And they would point to their skin and their muscles and their feet and their tissue. And, and I knew exactly what they meant. And I would look up to the the parent thinking, oh my God, what do you want me to say here? They were blown off. You know, they are then put in an incinerator. I'm not going to tell that to a young child. And And you don't need to be horrifically graphic, um, but Patrick really led the way on how to have an important interaction. How
1: did you both decide to make the character a child? Well, we thought that
7: that's what kids could really resonate with, and they could see a piece of themselves in her. In fact, we've had some friends read the book. And then their young daughters will ask to have their hair done like Jessica's in the book. (laughs) And I thought that that was the coolest thing because they they had, we, you know, for our dear friends, we know that they talked to them, their children about Jess's legs and her prosthetics and rescue. But then there was clearly something that they saw in Jessica that was heroic.
6: I think also it came because Patrick and I felt like children. We were adults. We were newlyweds, but our parents were at our bedsides. Our parents were making huge decisions for us when we weren't able to. Um, I felt I needed help with all these things that I hadn't needed help with, going to the bathroom and bathing and, you know, things that reminded me the last time my mom helped me with that, I was a child. Um, So it was a time where we felt those ages again. Um, But it was definitely, I think, guidance of working with our illustrator, Scott Magoon, and our publisher, Candlewick, who they they felt like it was important to change the age of Jessica in the book.
1: Yeah. uh, Um,
6: And I I think it was the right move, for sure.
1: So it's made for kids who are five to nine. But obviously, you know, there are a lot more people who follow you than that. But but what is it like when you are in an audience – you're doing book events like the Savannah Book Festival and speaking to a crowd of kids. What is their response when they're seeing you talk and standing up on your prosthetic legs and, and meeting rescue?
7: I feel like Justin Timberlake sometimes. <laughs> 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 it's like, oh, this must be what it's like to be you know some kind of rock star because they'll, you know, great schools or great libraries will have prep kids, you know, so they'll put up posters or they'll have read the book in advance or done some uh, research into prosthetics and rescue will walk into the library or auditorium and the kids say,
0: oh there's rescue
7: there he mm. is and say, oh that's jessica and they want to slap your hand they want to check rescue out they want to pet him they want to talk to him they want to talk to us and you can tell that they're just bursting to learn and that's what I've always found charming about children is their curiosity is just boundless. And if you trust them and trust that, that endeavor, you can go to some amazing places. And we've really tried to do that in our presentations and be really honest with kids and welcome any question that comes to their mind and help them work through it. We might not always have the answer, but you know, together I think we can get to a better place. And we've never... Uh, cease to be amazed by their questions and curiosity and compassion. Mm -hmm. Like we don't have to teach them the compassion. It's just so innate in them that they want to, they see this young girl who has been through a really difficult experience and they want to care for her or they want to find some way to care for people like that in their community. And it's just such a powerful lesson in uh, how we should all be toward each other.
1: Jessica, how about for you, what do you tell kids now, not at these events where it's, you know, kind of set up, but some kid on the elevator who asks, what happened to your legs?
6: Yeah, I think I'm a lot more comfortable in that space and um, more confident in my ability to to answer that in an honest but age-appropriate way. Um, And this book has really become a tool. I think the way that our We were received, you know, we did a 10-city book tour. So I I knew we'd be well-received in Boston because Boston has just loved and buoyed us since the very beginning of this. But to see how our book was going to be received on the West Coast, um, where they don't think about the Boston Marathon bombing that often anymore, um, was just really remarkable. And that we went from maybe me being in a grocery store and I could hear a kid really loudly, you know, they asked their questions so loud, Mom, what happened to that lady's legs? And I went from that situation where the parent usually kind of ushered the child out of the store, said, don't look or don't ask. And I felt like why I shouldn't be ashamed. This is how I look. It was nothing that I did wrong. I, I think it's important for kids to learn about what we've been through and our resilience. So I went from that to parents going out of their way to expose their kids to this story in this book. And I think that it just shows they were just looking for the tool to do that, that no one had the words or the way or the how. But once you do it, they really just leap on it. And I agree with everything Patrick said, but the other thing about these book festivals is that we'll get a lot of adults because that's usually who's, you know, we're not at a school. And so a lot of parents will be there. And I feel like they were longing for an explanation or to feel better about not just the Boston Marathon bombing, but all the trauma and tragedy that seems to happen more and more frequently in our world. Um, we did a book reading not long ago, and it was all adults. And we did a book signing. And I said to Patrick, are you going to read the book? Because he he reads it, and he does a special voice for rescue, <laughs> which the kids in Savannah get ready. It's really something. Um, and I said, like, are you going to do the voice? And you're going to read to all these grownups. And as I was watching him read, I was thinking, like, it's been so long since someone's read to these adults. We don't do that anymore. And it really just seemed like this peaceful, quiet, time where people were really reflective. And um, I don't know, it was, it was really special. I just think that we've been surprised by, you know, we wrote it with a certain age group in mind, but I think a lot
1: more than that age group's gotten something out of it. Uh, Jessica Kensky, Patrick Downs, thank you so much for speaking with us.
7: Thank you for having us.
1: Thank you so much. Well, as we said, they will be at the Savannah Book Festival next week on Sunday the 17th from 1 to 4 in the children's tent. But on Saturday at 2, they will be at the Savannah Library. On Second Thought is going to be there. On Friday night, I will be interviewing Daniel Crotthammer who took over from his father, the famed political columnist and commentator Charles Crothammer, the job of pulling together a bunch of essays, some of which have never before been read or seen, and put it together in a book called The Point of It All. So I will be speaking about that. All of the festival activities and our related interviews you could find at GBBnews.org. Well, that is our show for today. On Second Thought is produced by Elena Rivera, Leighton Rowell, LaRaven Taylor, and Amelia Brock. Alec Caslow is our engineer, Don Smith, our Dean of Grammar, and Amy Kiley, Senior Producer. We always love to hear from you. We're on Facebook and we're on Twitter at OST Talk, or you can email us at onsecondthought@gpb.org. At I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. This is On Second Thought.